It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, I guess the United States of America isn't heading towards secession after all. Wow, what a relief. So happy to hear that. Happy Friday, everybody. Hope you're going to have a good weekend. We are crashing as we speak on Media Buzz for Sunday morning, 11 Eastern. A whole lot of stuff uh, to talk about on that show, uh, some of which we will preview here for your exclusive listening pleasure. Uh, my reference to secession had to do with Rush Limbaugh. I mentioned how he had gotten a huge backlash for telling his, his massive radio audience uh, that the U.S. seems to be trending toward secession. Well, after that backlash, he came back yesterday and let's just say kind of walked it back. He said, well, you know, I wasn't suggesting this. He said, uh, I was talking about various blog posts I've read, uh, conservative sites, how distant and separated and how much more separated our culture is becoming politically. And it can't go on this way. Uh, He said, I myself haven't made up my mind. I still haven't given up the idea that conservative Americans are the majority and we have to find a way to unite and win. He said he never advocated secession in his whole a multi-decade career, and that people on the left were purposely mischaracterizing what he said. So I am sure you will not be shocked to hear that Times Person of the Year are actually Persons of the Year, and they're not, has been widely uh, speculated, the frontline workers, the medical people dealing with the coronavirus this year, uh, or Anthony Fauci. It's Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Now, I've already heard some criticism saying, well, you know, what has Biden done? He hasn't even taken office yet. Well, there's a pretty long Time Magazine tradition uh, of naming the person who wins the presidential election for the first time as the person of the year. I just did a quick search. It turns out that Donald Trump was Time's person of the year in 2016, uh, Barack Obama in 2008. Uh, It goes back to Bill Clinton in 92, uh, George W. Bush in 2000, Ronald Reagan uh, back in 1980. It doesn't always happen. Eventually, whoever's president becomes the person of the year. So I don't think time can be faulted on those grounds. Uh, And, you know, look, Time's editorial stance toward President Trump, no secret. There's been several covers that just showed him as an orange melting blob, his face just sort of melting down uh, with negative headlines. Um, And just this will give you the flavor from uh, Time explaining its election. Biden had the vision, set the tone and topped the ticket, but he also recognized what he cannot offer on his own. What a 78-year-old white man could never provide generational change a fresh perspective and an embodiment of America's diversity. For that, he needed Kamala Harris, um, who a biracial child of immigrants whose charisma and tough questioning of Trump administration officials electrified millions of Democrats. In the interview, traditional uh, when you're chosen as the POY, uh, Biden said, what I got most criticized for was I said we had to unite America. I never came off that message. So Biden gets his uh, star turn uh, in Time magazine. And a little follow-up here. Uh, I talked the other day about New York Times columnist Nick Kristoff and what a public service he had provided um, by exposing the fact that uh, Pornhub, which is uh, not only the most popular pornographic site on the web, but apparently the 10th most popular website of any kind, uh, had lots and lots of videos that included child sexual abuse. I mean, it's just absolutely reprehensible and disgusting. Well, not only, as I mentioned, I believe on yesterday's podcast, as Pornhub vowed to take this stuff down and to uh, uh, make it harder for individual people to post on the site, but Visa and MasterCard, as this is a direct result of Christoph's column, have announced they will stop processing payments on Pornhub. Uh, so obviously that makes it more difficult for people to subscribe to the site if you can't just you know, type in your credit card number. 
All right, lots to cover now on this Friday edition of the podcast. Let's get to work. Story number one. Well, I want to mention before we get into this, I literally just got word a few minutes ago uh, that uh, President Trump is taping an interview with Fox's Brian Kilmeade. will air Sunday morning on Fox and Friends. I am sure he will talk about the contested election. I'm sure we'll talk about Biden, Hunter Biden, and all that. Here's the Washington Post take. With his legal options dwindling and time running out, President Trump ramped up pressure on the Supreme Court to help overturn Joe Biden's victory. And here's the key part of the lead. Gaining the support of more than 100 congressional Republicans in the unprecedented assault on the U.S. election system. Uh, In a tweet this morning, President calling on SCOTUS to save our country from the greatest election abuse in the history of the United States. The Post says, repeating his base with claims of election fraud, he had a private lunch at the White House yesterday with some of the attorneys general from the 18 Republican-led states that are asking the court to dismiss the results in four swing states that Biden won. I'll get into the details in a second. So Texas is leading uh, the suit, Attorney General there, uh, Paxton. Um, and then 17 other state attorneys general, all happen to be Republicans, are joining the suit against the swing states, which, are, which have also filed. We'll get into that. But now you've got um, more than 100, 106 to be precise, Republican House members, a majority of the Republican caucus, signing on to an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, to support the Texas lawsuit. No Republican senators have done anything official as far as I can see. And among them are the leadership, you know, Steve Scalise, the majority whip, uh, Tom Emmer, the chair of the National Republican Congressional Committee. I see Liz Cheney is on it. Um, In the Twitter post, Trump says, I don't know where he got this number, 78% of the people feel, no, exclamation point, the election was rigged, in all caps. So this has caused outrage on both sides. On the one hand, like, you know, polls show more and more Republicans are buying uh, Trump's argument here, even though he has lost like something like 50 cases uh, in the states and the one sentence turned down from the Supreme Court. Well, now here's Texas. And the Supreme Court has to do something, I believe, because there is... Something in the Constitution that says that states can appeal to the Supreme Court when it's a matter involving other states. Usually that's a border dispute or something about water rights. Um, But it is, you know, unprecedented doesn't do it justice. It is unheard of for a state, in this case, Texas and 17 other states, to go to the Supreme Court and say, you know what, we don't like what Georgia and Pennsylvania and a couple of other swing states did. We want you to throw out their election results. Um, So, in fact, um, the high court has to rule on this. Democrats, of course, denouncing the last-ditch effort um, by Ken Paxton and his fellow AGs to negate. It basically calls for throwing out more than 10 million votes in favor of Biden in Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. So here's a typical uh, filing from one of the states opposing, one of the, I should say, one of the swing states. Pennsylvania's Democratic Attorney General Josh Shapiro, Texas's effort to get this court to pick the next president has no basis in law or fact. Uh, he said the court should not abide this seditious abuse of the judicial process and should send a clear and unmistakable signal that such abuse must never be replicated. Uh, so each, do that again, each of the states saying, you know, Texas is, uh, is off the wall, Texas shouldn't be allowed to do this, Texas shouldn't be involved. Uh, to do this, the court shouldn't get involved in a question that ultimately is political, a presidential election. Uh, Texas has not shown there were any constitutional violations, which might give the Supreme Court a, a door to walk through. That the claims come too late 
In other words, if you were going to file this, you had to file it, particularly in the case of Pennsylvania's uh, mail ballot law, a year ago when the law was passed, not after the results of a presidential election that you don't like. Now, this is getting hammered from the left and the right. So just to give you the flavor of it, National Review, which is totally broken with Trump on, the, on his post-election challenges, says, look, the odds of the Texas election lawsuit prevailing in the Supreme Court might not be less than one in quadrillion, but they are extremely remote and should be. It is the kraken of constitutional law. Um, the state, meaning Texas, is not exactly scrupulous in the evidence it musters. It contends that Biden had less than one in a quadrillion chance of winning any one of these battleground states after Trump established a lead on election night. The chance of winning all four, less than one in quadrillion, to the fourth power. But, and you probably know this by now, the calculation assumed that every batch of ballots would have roughly the same partisan breakdown as the November 3rd day of ballots. It was predicted, it was predicted that Trump would establish an early lead in states that counted in-person ballots first, and then Biden would gain as the states began to count mail-in ballots, which were heavily Democratic. This is not rocket science. This is not some nefarious plot. You can get into allegations of, you know, were the poll watchers allowed to watch? And uh, what about, the, was there fraud? Were there illegalities? What about this videotape and all of that? But again, National Review, that 17 other Republican states have filed a brief supporting Texas, and so have over Republican, 100 Republican members of the House, is a symptom of how far down the rabbit hole Trump has led the GOP in his election challenge. He's no longer simply seeking his day in court, but explicitly trying to get the court to overturn the election. The Supreme Court, says National Review, can't dismiss this suit fast enough. From the liberal side, the Atlantic, the Atlantic says that instead of Republican office holders waiting out Trump's post-election tantrum, he is waiting them out and slowly bringing the party around to his side. In this way, Trump is ending his presidency just the way he wanted, by correctly recognizing what Republican voters want and giving it to them and gradually forcing the party's purported leaders to follow along. The Atlantic goes on to say the embrace of the president's attempt to overturn the election results is both shocking and horrifying. As Trump's fraud claims and legal cases have steadily failed, the arguments he has pursued have become more outlandish and absurd and also more disturbing. Many Republican voters agree. And in refusing to stand up to him and them, Republican officials have gone from coddling a sore loser to effectively abandoning democracy. And this is me. Uh, it's very clear why uh, the state attorneys general, why the Republican members of the House are going along with this. And that is they politically fear Donald Trump. They don't want Trump to be making a list uh, of, um, of all of those who will remain silent and then trying to gin up uh, primary challenges against them in 2022. So they figure, look, I think their private calculation for most of them, maybe some of them are true believers, is Trump's going to lose. Biden's going to become president. Trump is going to be a force, perhaps the force, probably the preeminent force in the GOP. I don't want to get on his bad side. So now who's going to remember two years ago that I signed this amicus brief? I'll just do it. And therefore, I'll make it more likely that I can win re-election. That, I think, is what's going on. It's pure power politics. All right. Story number two. The Hunter Biden story continues to get more and more interesting. I was just on Fox talking about it this morning. So, here, you know, it isn't everybody that ignored the Hunter Biden story before the election. I'll get to that in a moment. And it isn't everybody 
that is ignoring it. Now, I must say, this is getting very little airtime on MSNBC, very little airtime on CNN, which is striking because CNN was trying to break the fact that Hunter Biden is under Justice Department investigation for potential or possible or alleged tax fraud, uh, called the uh, Hunter's lawyer, called the Biden transition office, was told there'd be a comment, and then got smoked when the Biden transition office put out a statement preempting CNN saying, hey, uh, yes, Hunter Biden is under investigation, but we say he did nothing wrong. So, um, the New York Times had a lengthy story yesterday. In today's follow-up, to its credit, the Times says the following. The newly disclosed federal tax investigation into his son will test uh, Joe Biden's stated commitment to independent law enforcement by le- while leaving him in a no-win situation that could prove distracting at best and politically and legally perilous at worst. So, Times is not downplaying what's going on here. Unless President Trump's Justice Department clears Hunter Biden of wrongdoing before leaving office, the new president will confront the prospect of his own newly installed administration deciding how or whether to proceed with an inquiry that could expose his son to criminal prosecution. Already some Republicans are demanding a special counsel be appointed to insulate the case from political influence. And, you know, that's not an outrageous request because how would anybody have confidence in whatever the Biden Justice Department would decide to do? if this case is still active after January 20th. There was the whole argument for the Deputy Attorney General, um, Rod Rosenstein, to name Mueller to investigate the Trump campaign. Here's the uh, tweet from the president this morning. Why didn't the fake news media, the FBI, and the DOJ report the Biden matter before the election? Well, here's the reason. I mean, some of the fake news media did report it, and we'll get to that in a second. FBI and DOJ, we now know, uh, thanks to reporting, um, kind of put the Hunter Biden probe on hold during September and October because there is a long-standing Department of Justice guidelines that say you should not, cannot take any action that could affect an election uh, in the period before that election. So they kind of put it on hold. And so it was hard uh, to follow up on that whole New York Post story, the one censored by Twitter, on the Hunter Biden laptop because there wasn't anything going on at the DOJ level. So that's the reason, Mr. President, uh, that they didn't say anything. And then Attorney General Bill Barr, who apparently knew about it, didn't say anything. Now the election's over. The investigation is active again. There are subpoenas being issued. And that's why some of this is coming out. Um, Just to finish up on the time story, uh, a matter now appears likely to hang over Biden even as he takes office. Um, And then it goes on to remind us that President's relatives have often been a huge headache for them. I mean, I've been around long enough that I covered the story of Jimmy Carter's brother, Billy Carter, um, who was investigated, people forget this, you know, it's years and years and years later, lobbying for the governor of Libya. He was ultimately cleared, but man, was this a headache for President Carter. George Bush's son, Neil Bush, was faulted by regulators in in the connection with the SNL crisis. Uh, That was George H.W. Bush when he was president. Bill Clinton, nobody remembers this, ultimately pardoned his own brother, Roger Clinton, his own half-brother, for drug charges, of which Roger Clinton was guilty. Uh, He issued more pardons that certainly uh, created more controversy than that, but Roger Clinton was convicted and then pardoned by his half-brother. So Biden ultimately has to decide what to do. And you know what? Republicans on the Hill, especially if Republicans keep control of the Senate, which is very likely, they're not going to sit on their hands. They've already signaled they're going to ramp up or restart their investigations of Hunter Biden. Um, and I have to say, looking back, 
you know, much of the media did either blow off or play down that New York Post story on Hunter Biden's laptop. You know, the NPR managing editor said, well, we don't want to waste our time on stories that are not really stories. Well, they're taking it a little, I shouldn't say just NPR, the media are taking it a little more serious now that we have confirmed that there's a federal tax fraud investigation of Hunter Biden. I remember reporting at the time that reporters for the New York Times and Politico, they just did these little tweets with a link saying, ah, the New York Post has this interesting story. They got slammed by the left for even mentioning the Post story. And there was this concerted effort by certain media outlets to dismiss the whole thing as a bunch of Russian disinformation. But here's the distinction that I tried to make on the air. Um, right now, we're all talking about Hunter Biden and tax fraud. And there are other elements. Uh, Joe Biden's brother, Jim Biden, uh, may be involved in a separate investigation. You know, all of this is going to be bad. And there's never been any question that while what Hunter Biden did has been done by other relatives of presidents, of members of Congress, you know, basically trading on the family name to make a lot of money. Like, why is Burisma in Ukraine? Well, this, of course, was the centerpiece of the impeachment proceedings against Trump. You know, hiring Hunter Biden for, what, $50,000 a month? You know, expertise in either Ukraine or in energy. So you can't really defend that. And Biden's been very careful. You know, he put out a statement the other day when his transition office acknowledged the investigation, saying he loves his son and he's been subjected to outrageous personal attacks, but not dealing with the substance of the investigation. But here's the distinction I want to make. Let's say Hunter Biden, he says he acted perfectly legally and appropriately. Let's say he is guilty of tax fraud. At one point, he owed hundreds of thousands of dollars in tax liens. The question during the campaign was not that. We didn't know about that. The question during the campaign was whether Joe Biden was involved with his son's foreign influence peddling. The Wall Street Journal and Fox's News Division looked into all the emails and all the texts. And yes, I know about the Tony Bobulinski interview with the former partner who says, yes, Joe was involved and I talked to Joe. There are other uh, former partners who dispute that. But anyway, the Wall Street Journal and Fox News found no role for Joe Biden in this aborted China deal. 2017, Biden was no longer vice president, but still, I mean, his was a big name to throw around. But obviously now we're in the middle of an investigation that has been going on for two years, so new information could come up. But so it's, we shouldn't fall into the apples and oranges trap of saying, well, the journalists knew about this and didn't report it during the campaign. What they knew was um, some pretty serious allegations involving well, the man who was then the former vice president. Um, and that's different from what we're looking at today, but it's all part, obviously, of the same investigation. Um, and as I say, let's make distinctions between those who are deliberately downplaying it or saying this is all politics or why is this leaking now? And those like the New York Times and others uh, that are doing what Fox News did. I mean, Fox got a lot of criticism for following up on this. And certainly the opinion people had their take on the Hunter Biden matter. Uh, but at the same time, it now looks like this is a pretty serious story and that Fox was right to look into it. You can criticize Fox for overplaying it. I mean, this is all fair game. Uh, but I think this story now presents a test, not just for the incoming Biden administration. And by the way, president tweeted this morning, I don't have it right in front of me, but said, you know, this shows the Biden administration is going to be racked by scandal unless the Supreme Court intervenes. That seems to me to be the president kind of admitting that there will be a Biden administration, something he's never quite explicitly said. But now he's using it in his argument that the Supreme Court should take up this Texas suit. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let's get to the depressing COVID news. Uh, I guess the good news is the vaccine. So story number three, the F an FDA advisory committee yesterday uh, approved the Pfizer vaccine. 
The full Food and Drug Administration now expected to issue an emergency authorization tomorrow, if not late tonight, tomorrow. And that means by Monday morning, the first COVID-19 vaccinations to be administered in the U.S. will begin, most likely. And first in line are the healthcare workers, who, of course, should be first in line. They're the ones who are absolutely on the front lines, risking their lives. And nursing home residents, of course, you can see why that's the most vulnerable population. Uh, and just, you know, just to review, the day before this FDA panel issued its endorsement, the U.S. set a, just an absolutely chilling record for daily COVID deaths breaking the 3,000 mark. It was 3,100. And last night, the reported deaths were nearing 3,000, so it hasn't really leveled off. The case count yesterday, 223,000 new infections made it the second worst day since the pandemic hit America. And by the way, you have, you know, I mean, when you say over 3,000 people died, that's more than died at Pearl Harbor. We're in 9-11 territory now. And some of the networks have these charts up about how many more people died, you know, than in certain Civil War battles died because of COVID-19. Obviously, different situation, um, but fair to point out, I think. Meanwhile, another vaccine in the works by the companies GlaxoSmithKline and Sanofi uh, saying today that their experimental vaccine did not appear to work well in older adults. Well, that's a big setback. So they're going back to the drawing board. And the New York Times also reporting more than 6,600, 6,600 college athletes, coaches, and staff members have tested positive for COVID-19 this year. Uh, that's going to have a big impact, obviously, on college sports. And this estimate by the Times is almost certainly an underestimate, the newspaper says, because um, this, first of all, this is just a, a study of uh, those infections that have been reported since August 15th. Secondly, the Times is only able to get access to complete data for 78 of the 130 universities in the NCAA football uh, bowl subdivision. In other words, there's a lot of other schools. The Times just couldn't get the information. So obviously that number probably much higher than 6,000. Just another um, perspective on how bad this is. And all the experts are now saying the next two or three weeks, especially with Christmas coming up, these numbers are going to get even worse. So the vaccines can't get out there soon enough. I wish there were more of these vaccines. Obviously, it takes time to ramp up. I wish the Trump administration had bought an extra $100 million, as it had the opportunity to do from Pfizer, and yet, obviously, the Moderna vaccine next up for approval. Story number four. There was a piece about this in the Washington Post yesterday. Today, columnist David Ignatius, uh, you also see him a lot on MSNBC, kind of um, not being totally favorable to the Biden cabinet. Uh, he calls it a comfort-level cabinet that Joe Biden is assembling. He says, that, look, it has some obvious benefits. If for four years of petulance and backbiting, um, Yes, Biden needs to help the United States take a deep breath without presidential pointies sniping at each other and jostling for position. He's gathering a cabinet that mirrors his own strengths. Sane men and women. I, I think sanity is like a pretty good uh, baseline requirement for those who would serve in these important positions. Sane men and women, says Ignatius, each one likable and competent. Like Biden, they can play the old tune so well that maybe Americans will begin to f uh, forget what they're so angry about. But he also calls them um, a team of retreads. Ignatius goes on. Biden's challenge is that after cooling off the national fever, literally and figuratively, he needs to shake things up. The federal government is a mess. The distribution of economic rewards so palpably unfair, it embarrasses even Wall Street tycoons, he says. Military strategy and procurement need to be reinvented to cope with a rising China. The intelligence community, he says, needs visionary leadership for the future, not just a repair job. 
Biden has appeared kind of conflict-averse in his initial cabinet picks. I can't argue with this. His primary metric seems to be, in addition to competence, people he's familiar with and his personal ease with his appointees. That's obviously true with Secretary of State, Defense, National Security Advisor. We're talking here about Tony Blinken, retired General Lloyd Austin, and Jake Sullivan. They've all worked smoothly with Biden in the past. The comfort factor also keeps interest groups happy. But the bottom line is that anybody who has more vision or more uh, ideological diversity, to use Ignatius' phrase, seems to get bypassed in favor of blander, safer choices. This is an interesting sort of liberal take on it. Biden should add some intellectual firepower with some contrarians who urge him to take risks. Uh, well, he's got more appointments, and obviously he can talk to people who aren't members of the cabinet if he wants to do that. But so far, it seems to be a play-it-safe cabinet, which could signal a play-it-safe administration. And a kind of a nice segue here to story number five. Uh, I know you're all dying to handicap the 2024 race, because, you know, it's only been a month <laughs> since the 2020 election. But Politico says that since Joe Biden hasn't so far picked any of the Democrats who ran against him, He's picking, you know, these sort of technocrats and seasoned loyalists. That bodes quite well for Kamala Harris. So she hasn't become vice president yet, but she'll be uh, the, oh, look, she was the front runner for 2024 on the Democratic side the day she was picked as Biden's running mate. And this is assuming that Biden at 82 doesn't run for a second term. So the fact that Joe Biden didn't pick somebody with obvious burning ambition to be president, but kind of you know, played it safe with his pals and Obama administration, people doing an encore turn, uh, is a springboard to Kamala Harris, according to Politico. While several people around Biden and Harris were reluctant to speak publicly about a topic they view as taboo, they acknowledge Biden's choices for top positions reinforce Harris's status as president-in-waiting. Biden has built an administration free of political threats to Harris. Um, and finally, you know, the idea that somebody was going to run from the cabinet anyway, kind of screwy because that person would have to resign midway through the term and then mount a challenge against the sitting vice president. But look, a lot happens in four years. Who the hell knows uh, what will be the situation in 2024? And I think to call her a president-in-waiting has a double entendre that I don't like. If you want to say that she is the instant frontrunner uh, for 24 with the assumption that Biden doesn't run again, I have no problem with that. She, you know, vice presidents are often instant front runners, as was George H.W. Bush when he not only ran but won the presidency, very unusual for a VP, a sitting VP, in 1988. But president in waiting sort of says, well, you know, Biden might get sick, he might uh, trip again following his dog and not be able to serve again, therefore she's president in waiting. Well, she literally is, the vice presidency is, and to use the cliche, a heartbeat away. But I, I would prefer not to use that phrase because we all wish Joe Biden will stay healthy the next four years. And by the way, you know, he doesn't have a successful administration. The nomination may not be as valuable as it otherwise would be, depending on who runs on the Republican side, which leads me to have to mention Donald Trump's name again, although it remains to be seen whether he's just talking about running or will run. All of which leads me to say thanks for listening. Uh, have a great weekend. You can subscribe most recently at Amazon Music. It's very easy to do. Please uh, tune in Sunday morning, 11 Eastern, for Media Buzz. We'll have all this and all the breaking news between now and then. And we'll see you back here Monday with more Buzz News.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.